Eric Holcomb rolls out his legislative agenda while House Republicans unveil their road funding plan. Dan Coats is headed to Washington to work for Donald Trump. That plus a citizen referendum proposal and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending January 6th, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, Governor-elect Eric Holcomb unveiled his legislative agenda. Perhaps the most attention-grabbing piece of that agenda was his proposal to make Jennifer McCormick the last state superintendent of public instruction elected by Hoosiers. Instead, Holcomb wants to create a secretary of education appointed by the governor. That idea has been pushed for decades by people from both parties, including notably during Democrat Glenda Ritz's recent term. Incoming Superintendent McCormick released a statement saying that she values the separation of powers, but also recognizes the need for the superintendent and governor to work collaboratively. House Speaker Brian Bosma has long been a proponent of this move and, according to Holcomb, will author the legislation to make the change. Should Indiana's school superintendent be appointed? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Jennifer Hollowell, John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Katzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. And Delaney, this idea has been tossed around for years. Is now the time? I, I think it is, actually. I, th I think it would be a good idea to have that appointed, the Secretary of State appointed, and the Attorney General. It makes no sense to elect those offices. Um, it's time-consuming. People don't know what they do or really, frankly, care what they do. They're largely ministerial. And in particular, in the attorney general situation, when you had an adversarial attorney general to the governor, I think it makes it difficult for that to provide, for that attorney general to provide the kind of representation that the governor needs. So I, I think all three of them should be appointed. Uh this, has been, this idea has been tossed around for a long time. Why do you think now is when it's really seemed to, seemed well, to be coming to head? Otherwise, they'd be hypocrites if they didn't support it now. I mean, <laughs> I mean I, come on. I do think it's past time. Uh, in 2004, Governor Kernan and then Governor Daniels um, both supported this, and it's something that I wish we would have done back then. But as Ann said, I mean, people on both sides of the aisle have supported this for a long time. It's important because this policy should be under the governor. The governor is responsible for it. I think it helps um, teachers as well to have one clear focus uh, and have cooperation in that department. If Tony Bennett had won re-election in 2012 and we didn't have a Democrat in the superintendent's office and a Republican in the governor's office, would we be having this conversation now or would this nope. position already be appointed? It nope. would be a, an appointed position. Um, that's, I think, the thing that the Republicans who had control of the House and the Senate at that time weren't banking on, was that Tony Bennett would lose. Uh, and so I think that's why we've seen it cycle through. Glenda Ritz's term came and went, and uh, things have set up for it again. And I do think it makes a lot of sense. I think Ann's uh, idea makes a lot of sense. But the one thing I do you know, worry a little bit is that there are an awful lot of professionals under the in in that department education professionals uh people who spend their careers in these issues and i would hate to see that get um i mean i know it's already a politicized situation but i'd hate to see that get any more politicized if it's an appointed situation so i'd like to you know have that kind of consideration uh, taken into consideration 
as if they do decide to go this way. Do you think the voters are going to take to having this electoral power taken away from them? You know, on the surface, uh, the notion of taking away an elective office is always problematic for a lot of voters. They feel that this is, if this is going to be a thriving democracy, we should be the ones who elect or hire uh, people and fire them or push them out of office. Having said that, let's put the, text, the civics textbook aside. This probably makes sense. As Ann suggests, maybe there's some name awareness uh, in the general populace during, in the months leading up to an election. Aside from that, I think a lot of people would be hard-pressed to even identify the state superintendent of public instruction. That's why we have seen this push uh, for some time. Brian Bosma himself, who, of course, will be authoring this legislation, has been supportive for a number of years. But as has been suggested, the time, the reason the planets are aligned now, of course, is you have – it would have been problematic to, for one party that controlled the House okay. and the Senate and the governor's office to get rid of that office as an elective office it had there had there been uh, that kind of party uh, tension, and even yeah, it would have looked and, bad, right? And so you've had well, Republicans now with a Democrat, but it always hasn't been that way. You've had Republic uh, Democrats in the governor's office and controlling at least the House when you've had Republicans in the state superintendent's office, and that would have been equally troubling in terms of the optics if they had severed that. Well, what would, uh, have, been, to that what would have been terrible uh, uh, politically for them is having urged it and taking the power away and going to war with Glenda Ritz for four years. Now that they have control of everything to say, oh, no, it's got to be elective, would have been a politically impossible position for them. Jennifer, do you think that, that uh, Jennifer McCormick is going to fight this? I don't expect so. I mean, I would assume that she was aware of this very early on in her campaign or conversations just when she was contemplating running for office. It's something that's been talked about for so long, and our leaders absolutely have talked about it for years. So I expect she knew that coming into it. And it wouldn't matter if she did fight it, okay? Well, and, and she could champion this. There have been people who have sought these offices, yeah. such as Secretary, uh, Secretary of State, State Tim Jeffers, went in there. I think his campaign kickoff was to basically well, put a makes sense paneling and board State up the office. And Attorney General as well. The other two, I believe, are constitutional. Uh, so that would yes. take a constitutional yeah, amendment, right. but those two could go. And I think if you're going to look at reform, that's a good way to do it. Uh, speaking of education, Governor-elect Holcomb's agenda also includes a call to expand pre-kindergarten funding. The Holcomb plan would double the state's pre-K pilot program from $10 million to $20 million a year for low-income children to attend preschool, but it would keep the program limited to the current five counties. Now, there's general agreement from basically every caucus at the State House to expand pre-K funding, anywhere from Holcomb's fairly modest increase to Democrats pushing for essentially universal pre-K. Jennifer Hollowell, does Eric Holcomb's pre-K expansion go far enough? Well, I think that it's smart, and in part because it doesn't go farther than the legislature is willing to go, and strategically, with all the things that he's going to have in the legislature, I think it's a smart move. It's also incredibly consistent with what Governor-elect Holcomb said on the campaign trail. Um, You know, the case being made for pre-K is that we need to help low-income children who need uh, an extra head start before they go into school. That's the case that's been made. That's the issue that we're addressing. And so he's proposing to double it. I think that the caucuses, um, we may see ideas that would expand in counties or the budget number may go up a little bit. But I frankly think this is a very good place to start. Does it go far enough? It's it's this typical baby step approach. Everybody admits that preschool for children 
It contributes to the success in school, diminishes the, uh, the demands put on the criminal justice system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are four-year-olds in 87 other counties that are never going to be four years old again, and we're not providing that. And in fact, we're taking statewide tax money to benefit only five counties. And when you've got waiting lists for these and you've got people saying they want it, and we know it has demonstrable benefit to the state, to take this little itty-bitty, I'm going to expand it, just this amount approach is just typical of the lack of vision. There is not universal support for pre-K, for Anybody universal pre-K. Anybody who reads the information will tell you that having pre-K contributes to their success in school. Period. It does. There's nothing else. There's nothing but, out there. But to that the doesn't mean that the state should be paying for it for four-year-olds. And what I'm saying is, if you Why get not? out around the state, there is not universal support for it. And it, frankly, it was an issue that was discussed in this past election, and voters sided on the side of Republicans. No, they didn't. He got caught up in the Trump landslide. Nobody even knows who, who Eric well, Holcomb is. Isn't legislative races is and all other races. He's there and he's the governor. And I do think that, uh, you know, you're talking about nine-figure price tags if you, if you take this all the way out. Right. So that's a huge investment. Right. And we still don't require mandatory kindergarten in this well, state. Well, that's another problem. So, you know, if you're going to do that with uh, pre-K, then you need to do the kindergarten. Both. And so now you're talking about a really large price right. tag, and I don't think they're ready to bite that off. Although well, they're but largely you've funding at... universal kindergarten at this point, for the most part. Uh, they no, are. It's not, However, it's not, it's not mandatory. mandatory. No. And so why would well, you... Well, the, the, the uh, preschool wouldn't be mandatory either, for that matter. It would just be an availability for people who have enough foresight to realize that the kids could benefit from that. But the other thing you've got to look at is not simply what it costs, but what it saves. And nobody oh, does agree. that cost-benefit analysis. No, they and don't that's do why that. we're prioritizing who would get it, and as opposed to Democrats just saying everyone should have it and we should pay for it for everyone. We're not to that point yet. Well, the, the research, though, shows that the kids who do well, the four-year-olds who go through programs that do get a leg up, are those who are in the high-performing programs. And if you look at some of the data, there are very few pre-K programs across the state that meet those criteria. So you, even if you say, okay, here's, here's the pot of money, we're gonna throw it at tuition for all kids in the state who are four years old to go to these schools, I'm not sure there's the capacity, the educational and expertise capacity yeah. within the state right now to provide the level of expertise and the quality of education that those four-year-olds want if they're going to move forward. Now, that's, that's infrastructure, a chicken and egg. Infrastructure yeah. is a big problem in, in when we're talking about pre-Ks, exactly like you, like you were talking about. But would it help if the state were driving more dollars right. into more than the five pilot counties that already exist right. to help build out that infrastructure elsewhere? Well, one, I think part of it is we don't know yet what is going to come out of this, but we're talking about dollars and prioritizing spending, and there are other things that have to be invested into, infrastructure, roads and bridges, and other topics. So it's, it's a matter of priorities, and like I said, truly, not everyone wants this. So, I mean, I think that we need to take responsible, measured steps. When, when we talk about priorities, at the same time we're cutting the inheritance tax, we're lowering the business tax, what we're saying is that our priorities are that, and our priorities are not investing in the next generation. That's what we're saying as a state. Nobody's mandating that four-year-olds go to this, but we have demonstrable, ability, demonstrable data that shows that four-year-olds benefit from this, and the state ultimately benefits from it. If they're Instead, in the right programs. Well, yeah, if, I think you've got to you say... Know, you've got to stop, you've got to stop 
uh, demeaning teaching as a profession. You've got to pay them an adequate amount. You've got to make it a reward. In I'm systems not, in countries where teachers are revered I'm not and all of I'm that, I'm saying some institutions you do well. that are in it for profit uh, to, to make money are not necessarily well, looking not to help the kids. Well, I'm not suggesting we put we put it in but for profit. It, it, please acknowledge it was Republicans, a Republican governor Mike Pence and Republican legislature that funded this pre-K start in the first place. Right, but again, it's too little and not enough, and the other 87 counties are paying for well, it. Well, that's a dangerous thing to go down that path, too, since he did turn away the right. prospect the of $80 million. The $90 million, million dollars from the They brought government. this, and they're pushing it forward. I mean, you just can't act he like Republicans down, aren't supportive. He turned down $80 million to make it much more universal. So he doesn't get a reward for that because he threw a Band-Aid on the problem. Republicans made it happen. Moving no, Republicans on. stopped it from happening. House Republicans this week became the first on the board this session with a plan to fund Indiana's roads. Speaker Brian Bosman says the state needs an average of about $1.2 billion a year over the next 20 years. His caucus's plan would immediately raise all fuel taxes by 10 cents and creates a new $15 annual fee on all vehicles. Bosman says those two moves would cost the average Hoosier about $5 a month. But the plan's initial steps only raise a small portion of the necessary funding, about $300 million in the first year, for example. Bosma says the proposal explores future funding sources, which include ensuring every penny from the sales tax on gasoline goes entirely to pay for roads, and exploring tolls on existing interstates. The House GOP proposal would also impose a $150 annual fee on electric vehicles and allow small cities to impose a wheel tax. John Ketzenberger, how closely will the road funding package that we assume will come at the end of the session resemble the House GOP plan? Uh, I think you'll recognize it, but I think you're going to see the, the Senate um, uh, have its imprimatur as well. And we still aren't sure what we're going to see from the House. Um, you know, I think when we looked at the, the, committee, the task force that was uh, organized over the summer, um, that uh, Senator Kenley and uh, Representative Brown co-chaired, um, this initial plan looks like a hybrid of what the Republicans offered last year and what came out of that committee. Uh, but I do think you'll see a lot more in the Senate for, uh, uh, for, from a funding source for tolling, uh, heavier reliance on that. Uh, I think you're going to see more um, uh, specificity about what the projects ought to be instead of uh, leaving it up you know, to uh, the DOT and, and others at this point. So I think you'll recognize it, but I don't think it's going to uh, go unchanged. I think uh, there's a long way for this to go before it reaches any kind of firm uh, plan. This is just the first plan out of the box. The, the reaction from a lot of people initially has been tax increases from Republicans, but is that simply the reality they're working with here? Well, you'll notice at the news release that the uh, caucus put out, the Republicans, I was if memory serves, did not mention the, the word taxes. No, they it call them user fees. User fees. Yeah. And... and, and you can't fault them for that approach because if you look at this overarching, the emphasis of this uh, proposal, it's about making the people who use the roads pay for the roads. And whether that's increasing the fuel taxes, whether it's directing, say, the state uh, sales tax on gasoline, the existing tax, which right. now a small portion, maybe what, one-seventh, one-eighth, goes to yeah. actually the purpose of, that many people think they're paying for when they let the gas pump, giving all of that to that purpose. It, the tolling certainly would be a direct uh, impact on the people who use the roads. So I think there is enthusiasm for that approach. Democrats, of course, are saying, hey, you're giving these tax cuts, and Ann just alluded to them a moment ago, right, a phased-in uh, right. corporate income yeah. tax reduction and so forth. 
they'll go along with it in the end because they don't have any option. Oh, but that, I'm not sure. Well, that's well, the case. okay, so they don't. Well, I mean, a lot of the criticism, though, so far has come from conservative, fiscal conservative organizations right. who are saying, absolutely not, you can't raise taxes. You shouldn't be looking to us, uh, the, well, the people's pockets books. You know, there, that there, that's that's the right wing of the Republican Party who has been filing these uh, pledges never to raise taxes under any circumstances. That's a silly approach to government and to life, actually. But the but John's right. I mean, if we stop the phase out of the of the corporate tax cuts, for example, we would have money to spend on roads and bridges and pre-K, neither of which the Republicans want to do. So what they want to do is shift that burden from the large corporations and those who have inheritances that aren't going to be paying taxes on to working people. That's exactly what they're trying to do with this. And they're asking with the tolls for us to pay for the roads again that we've already built. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And to get that passed, they're going to need every Republican vote, and they're going to need leadership from the governor's office. Because I don't think you're going to see Democrats supporting that. Well, they don't need every Republican. We, we, we hear, well, we hear a lot. We hear a lot from from Republican legislative leaders, from from the governor elect, from Governor Mike Pence, about how great the business climate here in Indiana is, and it ranks tops in the Midwest and among the tops in the country. So, is it fair to ask the average person to pay more out of their pocket when you're still going to be cutting the corporate income tax? Well, I'm going to say the same thing, because we do have a good business tax climate, because Republicans have been cutting taxes over the last 12 years, and also, by the way, have been cutting fat and expense um, in government to make it more lean and more efficient. Now is the time to invest more in our roads in a different way. And I think that it makes sense because it is putting the burden on the people who are using the roads, which includes, by the way, people who do not live in Indiana, who do not pay taxes in Indiana, businesses, trucks that are moving through and across our state. It makes a lot of sense. So to, if we have the tolls to actually just on have the, the taxes that you're paying go to what you think they are paying for. Well, if you have the taxes or the tolls, I should say, on just where the egresses are to the state and, and, and all that makes sense. If you have them on the roads that the rest of us are using every day, that's a different story. And that is asking us to pay for them again. And, you know, the business climate's supposed to be so good. The business jobs are pulling in here all the time. It seems to me we can cut back on the corporate tax cuts well, and fund the things we need to fund. Th there are also a, another big ticket item here that's lurking beneath this whole discussion about uh, roads is water infrastructure. Infrastructure. Right. That's a $2 billion problem, right. uh, and it's a critical public health problem, and it hasn't been talked about yet. I think it will be, and you'll also hear some talk about rural broadband in all of this conversation, uh, and also possibly another port for the state of Indiana. So there are a lot of things that have to be considered, and all of them have large price tags, so it is a real and, problem. And the but by all, does I, touch I, on, on, on the water infrastructure, it safety, does. and reliability. So that, but that, it, you're it, right. It creates, it creates basically a, a, a hub to, to, yeah. to study the existing infrastructure. Um, I don't Everything think we're going to see yeah, push, right? push it off another three well, or four I don't think years. we're going to see in this budget that But those that things, water those things are things that everybody is part expensive. of we need, we need to do them. We've always known we need to do them. And the fact of the matter is they don't want to do them because they're more interested in cutting corporate taxes and rich people's taxes than they are anything else. That's the, the nature of the game. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, are fuel tax increases necessary to pay for Indiana's roads and bridges? Yes, the state needs new revenue sources, or B, no, lawmakers shouldn't go looking in my wallet. Last week's question, are, or last year's question really, are lawmakers being too cautious as they plan the next state budget? 70% say yes, it's time to spend money on the state's biggest needs. 30% say no, 
They're just being prudent. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to WFYI.org IWIR and look for the poll. Well, former Republican U.S. Senator Dan Coats is headed back to D.C. to work for Donald Trump. After weeks of rumors, news broke this week that Coates has been tapped to become Trump's director of national intelligence. Trump's decision comes as he has been sharply critical of the nation's intelligence agencies and has cast doubt about their conclusion that Russia was behind hacking meant to influence last year's elections. Coates served on the Intelligence Committee and was previously U.S. ambassador to Germany. The pick is drawing praise from both parties here in Indiana, with Democratic U.S. Senator Joe Donnelly applauding the choice and noting what he calls Coates' clear-eyed view of threats that include Russia. John Schwannis, what do you make of the choice of the 73-year-old Dan Coates as National Intelligence Director? I think for many people it's a pleasant surprise. Uh, The reason I say pleasant is because people who have been concerned about Donald Trump's approach to national security issues, uh, and by that I mean doing a lot of policy implementation or or appearing to uh, foreshadow doing a lot of those types of policies with his thumbs via Twitter, very sort of uh, tit-for-tat approach, uh, maybe a little bit uh, bluster in there. That is not Dan Coates. Dan Coates, of course, is somebody who appreciates uh, and respects the institutions in which he has served, multiple terms in the House, multiple terms in the Senate. He uh, uh, And so he, he understands the process and appreciates it and is not a, a rash person. The reason and yet, I, but, but we've seen, we've seen other, other people who've, who've been considered that same way come into the Trump camp, and all of a sudden they're... Like James they're, Woolsey. Exactly. Just, uh, so, we, left, so we've seen them change. So, so do you think that Dan Coates will actually help moderate Donald Trump, or will, this be, will we see a different Dan Coates now? What's amazing about this is the day before the announcement... Donald Trump announces he's not going to fill the position because it's not important and he doesn't need it. And the next day he appoints Dan Coates. I mean, I'm sitting there saying, uh, I, I think the problem from Dan Coates' perspective is that it's clear that Donald Trump is going to denigrate anything that national security advisors say that he doesn't want to agree with, whether it's true or not. And that puts him in a very awkward position because he's got the institutions behind him saying pretty much unanimously that Russia is involved in the hacking system and Donald Trump saying no. He has a risk here. He's had a pretty undistinguished but unblemished career in the House and the Senate. And and that could change with this because there could be a falling out that could require him to resign or be fired because of that. Is this going to end up being in many ways a thankless job for Dan Coates? Well, I mean, it's a it's a big responsibility. I mean, it is a thankless job in many ways, I think, in general. But, I mean, I'm really excited about it, as I think a lot of people are, because Senator Coates has the experience, the intellect, the temperament to not just serve in this capacity, but to really excel in it. And, um, I mean, I think that's why a lot of people are, are praising it, including Democrats who are really... Um, pleased I, by the choice. I do think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. He does have a tough role, uh, but he also has a chance to do that moderation that you talked about. Uh, but remember, Bill Ruckelshaus and the Richard Mi- in the Nixon mm-hmm. administration had to say, no, I'm not going to do this, and, look and get happened. himself fired. Right. And will, will we and find you, Dan Coates in that same kind of a situation? You think Donald Trump, I mean, I think Richard Nixon, by comparison to Donald Trump, seems moderate. We may find out sooner than later, just I'll say because, keep in mind, uh, Dan Coates was very critical back before the election of Russia and Vladimir Putin. He's always right. been a hawk, so that'll right. be, they'll come to House, pretty uh, House Democratic leader Scott Pilath wants Hoosier voters to have a larger role in shaping policy. 
Pilath proposes allowing citizen-initiated referenda, where voters can put binding public questions on their ballot if they, for instance, gather enough signatures. Pilath says as citizens become less trusting of government institutions, allowing them to initiate reforms would help energize the electorate. Speaker Ryan Baza, never a fan of widespread use of referenda, he says he thinks putting questions to the public on those ballots puts those issues in the hands of special interests, expressing concern about the kind of massive campaigns you see in California. PLS proposal would require changing the Indiana Constitution. And Laney, would a ballot referenda be a good thing for Indiana? Well, with all due respect to the minority leader, I don't think so. I really think these are a bad idea. I think California is a perfect example. It brings in the special interests that spend unlimited amounts of money and can warp uh, discussion of any particular issue. I just don't think in today's day and age it's a good idea. Jennifer, is it unlikely we see this happen? Very unlikely. I agree with Anne, and I'm frankly surprised that they think it might be good, given that Hoosiers just supported Trump-Pence by 20 points. I don't know that the Democrats really want to have this happen. Finally, part of Governor-elect Eric Holcomb's pre-inaugural events this weekend is the Shoot and Shoot. You can go to Camp Atterbury with incoming First Lady Janet Holcomb to use their virtual weapons training platforms. And then you can go to Hinkle Fieldhouse, shoot baskets with the governor-elect. Jennifer Hollowell, would you rather go to the gun range with Janet or shoot hoops with Eric? I'm already RSVP'd for the gun range, and which I'm pretty excited about. You know, Janet is a NRA certified safety uh, instructor, and yeah. shooting yeah. instructor. And Sunday is my birthday, so I have other plans. Dick, Ch- Dick Cheney's you know, not going to be there, is he? Of all you know, of the I, things, it, you know... It's virtual. I, 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 no, it's I, virtual. Okay. I understand okay. that they want to have fun, but of all the things they could do as a prelude to their inauguration to engage people in civic activity and to get young people excited about it when we have homeless people and people who need food drives and all that kind of thing, we have to shoot guns or shoot baskets being the only thing about civic engagement. I think they've had an opportunity to do something meaningful here that they've completely blown. You could have had a vaccination campaign. You could have had a vaccination shot, shots and shots. After, they were, after their home was broken into. That's why Janet became trained. I, I don't and care she about helping women. I don't even care that she's certified. <laughs> I just don't think that's the kind of image we want to project to young people we want to be civically to, to, involved. To share their passions and give people an idea of what that's, they're interested right. in. That's, I think it's the wrong idea. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Anne Delaney, Republican Jennifer Hollowell, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Katzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. 